What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? It's going pretty well. I hope everyone's ready for some high-quality analysis with my low-quality audio. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Ben is joining us from not his home with not his usual mic setup. So we've got a little bit of an audio discrepancy here, but we're going to make it work, and we're going to get this value out to you regardless. Yeah, let's just say I tried to remember to bring my actual setup, but uh, you know, clearly we know how that worked out. It's okay. We'll get through it. This week we are talking about New Capenna, or I guess more accurately called Streets of New Capenna, the new the new format dropping just this week for pre-release, and we're going to walk through the entire format in terms of archetypes and vectors. We'll step through all the new mechanics, all the different vectors that you can expect to put together in terms of deck vectors, and cards to look out for as the format gets started here. But before we do all of that, of course, our usual housekeeping, check out the Discord if you're not already in there and do stop in and say hi for your pre-release for your initial first few drafts. And we'll see who can snag the ever elusive first trophy in the Discord as well. May need to start putting together like a special role or something for whoever gets the first trophy of the season. I think that'd be fun. But the link- I'll just keep winning it over and over again, and then uh, <laughs> it's not going to mean anything. <laughs> That's fair. Andy has picked up a, quite a few as well, so you got a little bit of competition there. But Oh, yeah. I'm, don't worry. I'm going for the uh, the trophy on pre-release this time around. So uh, We have a, an early pre-release, too, so no one's going to even have time to get it before us. That's fair. That's fair. And the link to that Discord is in our episode description as well as on the Twitter page if you'd like to check that out. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us each and every week. We are beyond grateful for all of you. Really can't thank you enough. And we're coming up close to our 100th episode and our second year anniversary. So look out for special things coming up for all of that. Perks for the Patreon include things like stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, and our Draft Chaff Hero cards signed by us and sent right to you as well as access to our office hours, which we will be holding right after our pre-release this week. So do check that out if you're interested in that as well. Again, you can find that at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Now, normally we would have a crack draft type thing here at this point of the show, but we're going to skip that because we've got a lot of cards to talk about and New Capenna is not quite out yet, so we're not going to give you a... Pack one, pick one for that format just yet. So on to our Teferi Tybalt, which is our Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low for the past week. So Ben, Teferi Tybalt. Well, my Teferi is that it's spring break. Not in my usual place because I'm I'm on kind of vacation, I guess. So uh, I've got a free week, no school, no things to do. Uh, That's a lie. I have a million things to do. And uh, I'm I'm almost more busy now than ever. The random things here and there keep popping up. But at least it's different than the usual work that, that I have to do. Tybalt. I guess that's the table too. Just many things to do, organizing things and, and planning ahead and crunching money numbers and all that stuff, stuff that I've been putting off for a while and now I finally have time to do. It's time to do all those unpleasant tasks as well as the uh, the pleasant ones. That's fair. For me this week, it is obviously pre-release, so that's my Teferi. I'm really excited to get my hands on a new format here, especially one with wedges. I always find that the wedge sets tend to be my favorite draft format, so I'm excited to see if that stands to be the case this time around. Also, maybe getting a new car this weekend. Not so oh. sure. It's like kind of a last minute thing, but I'm between two different cars and they're very different prices. One is half the price of the other. And I'm like, really want the more expensive one, but convincing myself that I should actually get the cheaper one because money. So 
Yeah, I don't know, but that that might happen this weekend. We'll see. Also, my Tybalt, can spring just be spring? Like, the weather this week has been ridiculous. It was like 80 degrees just a few days ago, and then it gradually dropped off to where it's less than 50 right now, and... <laughs> I am, I'm so tired of this. Can we just have spring weather for like a little bit before we get into the summer here and are, you know, just bogged down with the gross, humid northeast heat? I think it's just going to oscillate back and forth between blazing and freezing and, and never really give us what we want. Yeah, that does seem to be the way things go. All right, on to our listener question of the week. And this week, our question comes from Jaron, and it's a very poignant question for this week's episode. The question is, when a set is heavily based around three color families or wedges, how does this affect assembling your mana base when drafting? Awesome question. So the last time we had a wedge set was Ikoria. And there we had the ability to pick up dual lands at common, which are really the, the, the crux of this question. I guess, how does this affect your, your assembling your mana base? Pick up dual lands and take them highly. So if you want to play a three color deck in any case, you're going to want those common dual lands and you're going to have to take them pretty aggressively, maybe more so than you would in a normal format, say with a normal two color format format and a two color format those dual lands are good to have you know like they're solid they're nice uh we kind of just experienced that just now with, with neon dynasty although there were plenty of three color decks and even more floating around in there too it allows for splashing but now you can kind of play these straight up three color decks usually you don't want the devil's mana base as they say you don't want six of each color land you're never going to cast your stuff on time if you if you have a, a hand of like red and green cards and you have all uh, all planes in your hand you're going to feel pretty bad about it but replace maybe two of those planes with two fixing cards, maybe like an Evolving Wilds, of which there are kind of guild-specific ones in this set, and uh, dual lands, and then all of a sudden cashing those cards gets a lot more reasonable. So I would say the thing you have to be prepared for most is to sacrifice a bit of your usual pick order. and know that you're going to have to give some of those maybe 5th through 10th picks, ones that you usually use to pick up maybe some solid commons or uncommons even. Uh, that's where you want to slam those lands. Yeah, for sure. And again, as Ben mentioned, we don't have the typical Evolving Wilds in this set. We we have a different variation to that style of card where you can only grab lands from the given wedge for the particular version that you're looking at. And then they, they gain you life when they enter the battlefield. So it, they kind of turn, all, turn your basics of the particular wedge into gain lands, which is cool. But something to consider, you won't have the ability to go grab any land you want. You do have to grab the ones from that particular wedge. But definitely... Pay attention to those those uh, common dual lands. There is a cycle at rare as well, which are the cycling lands that kind of finish off the triome cycle from Ikoria. They're not triomes this time around, but they serve the same purpose, and they'll fit this set's wedges colors, so keep an eye out for those as well. Those are going to be pretty high picks as well. All right, on to our main topic, and again, this week we're talking Streets of Nuka Pena format breakdown. It's the probably the most fun show Ben and I do, really. It's so much fun to get to talk about all the new stuff coming up. So we're going to look at each of the three color wedges. And then there's actually something a little bit unique with this set in terms of wedge sets. We have five families, as they're called, within Capenna. And each of those families are sort of run by these demons that build, you know, think mob families. And that, that might surprise you because that would mean we have five archetypes. Most good draft formats have ten archetypes. Well, we actually have that here as well. We have the five families and then there are actually... Five two-color archetypes that are supported as well. And we'll get into what those look like and how you can kind of make those work also. And then we're going to cover all the mechanics as well. So we'll dive into all these different things. So Ben, why don't you kick us off with the first of the mechanics that we are going to look at? 
Sure thing. So each of these crime families also so funny. Love the crime family stuff. This lore is great. Uh, it's going to be a good flavor time episode this time around. The first of the crime families, each of them does have their own mechanic that they're kind of built around. Uh, the first one for Obscura is Connive. So this reads, draw a card uh, and then discard a card. If you discard a non-land card this way, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. So this is sometimes a triggered ability, or I think a few cards have it as an activated ability. Like one of the attack, uh, you could do it, or it might have like pay three uh, to, to connive. Uh, and then with that creature connives, you get to loot, draw, discard. And if you, I mean, usually when you loot, you want to just, you know, pitch your extra lands, right? But in that case, you won't get the plus one, plus one bonus. But if you do discard a non-land card, you get a plus one, plus one counter on your creature. So, yeah, again, this is in the, the Esper colors. That's white, blue, and black. So counter is going to be flying around, looting effects. Look for ways to get graveyard value from this. Uh, if you can pitch good cards that want to be in the graveyard anyway. And uh, maybe keep a land in hand. If you have a card that has connive you know, in your deck still and you're like top decking, don't play that last land out because uh, maybe you'll want to top deck that one creature that has connive, play it, and then uh, cycle that land away to try to find something better. You won't get the connive bonus, but you know at least you're drawing a card. Yeah, that seems pretty powerful, and we'll look into cards that take advantage of this uh, mechanic in a little bit. Our next mechanic here is from the Brokers family, and they are shield counters. Now, it's not exactly a mechanic word or, or keyword or anything, but we see these shield counters all across the Brokers archetype, which is uh, the Bant colors, blue, white, and green. And the shield counters essentially say if it would be dealt damage, if a creature would be dealt damage or destroyed, remove a shield counter from it instead. Now, the, that initial damage doesn't have to be lethal. It could just be a ping. Um, and it doesn't work against exile effects or sacrifice effects. Notice it specifically says would be dealt damage or destroyed. Also, I had misread this mechanic at first, and so hopefully this helps anybody else who, who did the same. This is not optional. If your creature takes any kind of damage, the shield counter goes away. You don't get to choose when to remove the shield counter, so do keep that in mind if you're trying to throw your creature into the red zone, but would rather protect it from a damage spell or a destruction spell. Something to keep in mind. Next up, the Riveteer's mechanic, Blitz. I'm suspicious of this one. If you cast a spell for its Blitz cost, it gains haste, and the text, when this creature dies, draw a card. And then you sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So... You play out your creature for an alternate cost, usually. Sometimes the cost is more, sometimes the cost is less, depending on if it's better or worse to have that creature around for only one turn. For example, some of them have a death ability, and that might, you know, they might want to make it easier to cast or harder to cast. Maybe they have an ETB ability. They die into a card no matter what. So I'm thinking this is a very aggressive mechanic, obviously. This is best when your opponent is at, like, three life, and it doesn't matter how your creature, you know, leaves. They have to block, they have to trade, and they're forced to it to give you the card off of it anyway. I mean, if you're just playing all your creatures with haste and d draw a card when your opponent trades off with them, that's a really strong effect. And if you can tend towards that as best as possible, uh, that's going to be a pretty good game plan. So notably, it dies into a card no matter what. Uh, whether it's sacrificed at the end step or sacrificed to another effect or traded off in combat. So obviously this pairs well with other sacrifice effects. And as for how good this is in the early game, that's where I'm pretty suspicious. When you want to be building your board, isn't it better to just, you know, have a creature stay? Yeah, we'll have to see exactly how aggressive these blitz decks can get. And maybe if they're aggressive enough, it'll be worth getting that uh, that blitz cost and getting them in early, getting those cards to fuel you playing more very quick aggressive creatures but we'll see how that goes our next mechanic here is alliance and this is the cabaretti mechanic 
Cabaretti being red, white, and green colors. And Alliance is essentially landfall, but for creatures. Um, it enters the battlefield tribal, and it cares about having creatures enter the battlefield. You often want to look for cards that bring more than one creature along, so you get a bonus effect, and creatures that kind of bring friends go up in value as they enable this alliance mechanic. And there are a bunch of cards. This isn't exactly a keyword either. It's one of those mechanics that has a title, but the trigger's the same, but they all do different stuff. So you want to look for things that bring creatures into play and pick up the cabaret cards that actually have the better alliance effects. This is my favorite so far. I have been jamming a lot of Tinkerer's Cube this week, and I have not yet passed the teleportation circle once. Like, nobody past me has seen that. So uh, I'm a big fan of, of creatures entering the battlefield and, and leaving the battlefield even. So I'm curious to see how this one plays out. Last up of the main five mechanics is the Maestro's mechanic, uh, the casualty. As you cast the spell, you may sacrifice a creature with power X or greater. So it'll say, like, casualty one, casualty two, ca uh, power blank or greater. When you do, copy the spell, and you may choose new targets for this copy. So it can be at least X, right? Like if it says casualty one, you could sacrifice a five power thing, and it would trigger. Not that you'd you know, want to sacrifice your five power creature for a casualty one thing. I guess one is pretty doable, given that there's going to be a lot of tokens around. There's plenty of 1-1 tokens in the set. Citizens, uh, fish, for some reason. <laughs> Why not? One is definitely doable, but casualty two, in order to get a two-powered creature, that's usually a real card. Like that's something you probably actually had a card in hand and played man to the cast, like a two mana two two or something. There's not often two power tokens. So uh, again, this is gonna rely on whether you have enough enablers and payoffs. And then there are a few other mechanics we want to bring to your attention. There are five sub themes for each of the different um color pairs or the allied pairs. There's cycling, which we've come to sort of expect as an evergreen mechanic that comes back every now and then that just lets you pay mana to discard a card and draw a card. Notably, cycling is only on the triomes, which Fair, yeah. I think is pretty funny, but uh, we thought we mentioned it. Yeah, that's actually an interesting part about some of these mechanics as well. Like the next one, Hideaway, is only found on five cards as well, and they're all enchantments. So <laughs> yeah. something to, to consider. Like these are really my new little, little tiny mechanics that they're bringing back from other sets. Vehicles are back. We do have a few of those, and as Ben mentioned, fish, for some reason. We have uh, a few cards that make fish tokens. Yeah, I, I think it's like a story. I was looking at some of the cards, but not in order. I think it's a story of like someone who like messes with a mot with a boss and then gets like fed to a bunch of fish, and then the fish gain the powers of the... I don't know. It's some counters thing. We'll see it in a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the Godfather reference, right? Like, you're going to sleep with the fishes? Exactly, exactly. So, let's get into the main vectors. Let's start off with the brokers. Now, we should mention that each of the five houses does have a primary color, uh, and <laughs> it's a bit of a weird theme, but don't worry about it. Uh, brokers are the quote-unquote white family. Uh, they're base white. So, they're white, blue, and green. First up, we have Lagrella the Magpie. Mag? Magpie? Mag? Mag? Don't worry about it. This is one of the most confusing cards that I've seen spoiled in a long time, and not just because of the name. I assume it's Magpie. White, green, blue for a 2-3 human soldier at Uncommon. It is a legend, as, as all of the uh, first signposts will be for each of these houses. When the girl of the Magpie enters the battlefield, exile any number of target creatures controlled by different players until the girl leaves the battlefield. When an exiled card enters the battlefield under your control this way, put two plus one plus one counters on it. So you want me to read it again or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically Lagrella comes in. If you're playing in, in a one-on-one -on -one game, she lets you exile one of your opponent's creatures, one of your own creatures that isn't Lagrella. And then if they kill her, 
and they want to get their card back, you're going to get yours back, but it's going to come back with two plus one plus one counters. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't just say that. <laughs> so, somehow that made a lot more sense than what's written on here. I guess it, what's weird is that any number of other target players, and I, I guess what confuses me is that it, when once Legro leaves the battlefield, I guess that I guess that exile clause when an exiled card enters the battlefield under your control this way, I guess that means it'll trigger even if she's not on the battlefield anymore, and like it'll remember that it was exiled with Legrella. Yeah, it's similar to like the Gonti sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Uh, it seems fine. I mean, a Banisher Priest is a solid effect and limited, and I guess if you have a creature who enters the battlefield ability you want to rebuy, maybe a creature who enters with a shield counter on it, you could have Lagrella Exile kind of reflicker your shield counter creature so that way you get it back. Uh, it's an interesting little hostage situation. Like You take one of your opponent's things, but you also lose one of yours, even if temporarily. Broker's Charm is up next. Green, white, blue for an instant and uncommon. Of course, each house will have a charm. Choose one. Target creature you control gets plus one plus zero until end of turn. It deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. Already great. Destroy target enchantment or draw two cards. This is really strong. That first effect is a three mana card. Clear shot, I think, right? Uh, and that is a three mana instant already. And then giving this an option to have a uh, just a divination at instant speed if you want it, or the occasional enchantment removal. This feels really strong and and uh, a clear sign for for uh, for the brokers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, some comments we wanted to mention, just to kind of show off the uh, the counter sub-theme. Revelation of Power is one in the white. It's an instant. Target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. If it had a counter on it, it also gains flying and lifelink until end of turn. Plus two, plus two, flying lifelink is a pretty good amount of stuff for, uh, for a two-mana combat trick. I mean, it's your old, good old two-mana plus two, plus two. But this clearly shows that the, the creatures that have counters, I mean, usually these, these will say like indestructible too, but maybe the shield counter is kind of that indestructible clause. It's already taken care of that. So if you have a, a creature with a shield counter, indestructible, flying, lifelink, plus two, plus two, I mean, this will win combats and also the ability to give flying pre-combat is a good way to close out games. Don't underestimate the ability to jump one of your creatures and just swing in for the last four or five points of damage. Yeah, and it's worth noting, too, these cards, a lot of these will, will maybe trip some folks up. I know I'm going to get tripped up by it, but they do count any kind of counter. So shield counters, plus one, plus one counters, loyalty counters even, if somehow you end up with one of those on a card that can get targeted by something like this. Just keep an eye out for any kind of counter being on something, and you'll get the, the extra effect off of cards like this. Actually, it's funny you say that there is. <laughs> I think I think it's the mythic uh, the mythic equipment, right? Giada's gift or gift of Giada is the the uh, artifact equipment that lets your planeswalkers do the Gideon thing and become creatures. So I guess if you if you do that, <laughs> it would count. Another comment to chat about Rock's Pummeler. It's five and a green for a six three at common. Enters the battlefield with a shield counter on it, as many of the brokers commons do. And Rock's Pummeler has trample as long as it has a shield counter on it. That's a pretty beefy, unstoppable creature. A 6-3 with temporary indestructible and trample. Like, I mean, it, it may have low toughness, but that's because it's going to trade off for something twice. Yeah, the interesting thing to note with this card is that the first time it attacks, it'll get that trample, it'll not die, and then it'll have to get in again, and it won't have trample the second time it attacks because it'll have lost the shield counter if it was blocked at all. Just something to keep in mind. If, if your opponents never block it and it's not, not being dealt damage or being targeted with removal then it'll keep that trample but as soon as that shield counter goes away it loses the trample it feels pretty hard not to get a two phone off of this right like even if they stick a three mana three three in front of it you still traded for that for just a shield counter and then you know they'll have to use a kill spell it's a six three but you can't just ignore that right yeah my expectation is that 
people are going to stockpile their one ones and just throw those in front of creatures with shield counters. And then once the shield counter is gone, then you throw something like a three mana three, three in front of this. And then you've only really gotten like a one for one. If you trade away like a one, one citizen to get rid of the shield counter, it's not really setting you back much, but we'll see how that actually plays out. Yeah, I guess I have it in my head that this kind of still works like totem armor. It does just have to be any amount of damage to pop that shield, which I guess is a downside, but you know, this is still going to get in for a million trample damage if you try to chump it with a 1-1. True. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. So anyway, the name of the game clearly counters. Uh, shield counters and 1-1 counters seem to be the, the ones in particular. There's some strong cards in Brokers, but they tend to be on the smaller side. Uh, it's kind of the counters that make up for what's going on here. I say smaller, even though we just talked about a 6-mana six 6-3, six but a lot of these, I think the other one of the other signposts on commons is a, a 3-mana 2-1 with double strike and a shield counter. So like that's a that's a solid attacker and a solid creature, but it's small, right? And the shield counter is what makes it, it makes it kind of uh, that that extra oomph that you want for this this deck. So I think play, ways to put extra counters on things, ways to like spread around one one counters or divvy up counters or move counters. I think there's a one in the white one one that enters the battlefield puts a counter on a creature. I feel like those types of effects will be pretty crucial here. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning before we get too much further, there is at least one cycle of cards in each of the houses that are at common, but they cost triple, like tricolor to cast. So keep that in mind that these things are going to be floating around all over the place. You definitely are going to need to keep an eye on your mana base to get these decks to be playable. Oh yeah, you're not casting Lagrella unless you have some, some pretty solid fixing. All right, on to our next vector here. This one is Obscura, which is base blue but it is the Esper colors as we've been used to calling them white, blue, and black. Uh, as we mentioned, Connive is kind of the biggest mechanic in the set, and our first signpost uncommon here is Quasa Augur of Agonies, which costs one white, blue, black. It's an uncommon Cephalid Advisor. Love it. It's a 3-4, and it says whenever you draw a card, target opponent loses one life and you gain one life. I love this card. I'm going to do you proud here. Would you believe me if I said I'm already working on a commander deck for Quasa? That's pretty great. I'm excited it's, to uh, see it. It's wheels themed. Quasar Love wheels. Love it. Pretty, pretty disgusting. But uh, yeah, this is a cool card. Works well with Connive. Yeah, absolutely. That's That was, at first when I read this, I was like, man, how many effects are we going to have that let you draw cards to actually get value off this? And I was like, oh yeah, Connive just does that. And pretty much every Obscura card has Connive on it. There are a lot of cards printed with Connive. Our next signpost uncommon here is Obscura Charm, which is white, blue, black. It's an instant at uncommon, and it says, choose one, return target multicolored permanent card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped, counter target instant or sorcery spell, or destroy target creature or planeswalker with mana value three or less. That's a lot of value packed into one card. These charms are pushed. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, this doesn't connive. <laughs> it also doesn't draw cards. But it is a removal spell, it's a reanimation spell, and it's a counter spell uh, occasionally. Yeah, just really solid effect. And... Our next card here is is in blue. It's a Cephalid Rogue. A Psychic Pickpocket is a four and a blue uncommon creature. It's a three-two. And when Psychic Pickpocket enters the battlefield, it connives. When it connives this way, return up to one target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. So it's a nice little unsummon attached to a creature that also draws you a card and potentially picks up a counter. Wow. Now, notably, <laughs> this doesn't say other or opponent controls. So if you've had one of your creatures arrested, you can bounce it back to your hand. Or if you have 10 mana, just play the pickpocket, bounce the pickpocket, play the pickpocket again. 
Yeah, it's a nice little way to rebuy the connive thing if you really need to do that for whatever reason. But there are plenty of other creatures in this uh, set that are worth rebuying ETB effects or things like that. So just something to keep in mind. And then lastly here we have Rafine's Guidance, which is white for an enchantment aura at common. It says enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus one plus one. And you may cast Rafine's Guidance from your graveyard by paying two and a white rather than paying its mana cost. So this is a weird way of saying it has flashback. Don't know why they, I guess they just didn't want another keyword in the set because there are a lot of keyword's here, but one mana plus one plus one aura that you can rebuy seems pretty solid. It's we've seen cards like this be pretty decent in past sets, so excited to see how it works here. Well, as you uh, the eyes from from a few sets ago in Theros Beyond Death, and notably this seems like a plant for the card that you want to discard to connive. And there's other ones as well, but you discard this to connive, replay it from the graveyard, buff up your creature a little bit. Uh, it's a little mana intensive. Three mana for plus one plus one isn't ideal, but maybe you just put this on your your normal creature just normally and just attack with it. It seems like kind of the key card that you want to be discarding and bringing back. There's other ones too, but this seems like a version of it at least. Uh, to be fair, it seems like one of the worst options, but uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, at least an indication into what this vector is trying to do. Definitely. And to that note, right, Conniving creatures here are going to lead to some pretty strong, consistent draws. They're going to let you curve out by, you know, sifting your hand and making sure that you have cards to play, but also lands to cast those cards. There's also a somewhat weird kind of sub-theme in... I've seen it mostly in blue or black, but it, it checks for five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. Kind of strange. Not actually sure how often that's going to come up in limited, but something to keep an eye out for. Otherwise, there's tons of counters with connive. There's plenty of evasion. There's a lot of flyers in blue-white, and um, you're going to be drawing a ton of cards. So it should really be able to generate enough value to kind of power you through almost any situation. Yeah, just good flying threats, good evasive, unblockable threats, putting counters on them. Seems like a good recipe. Next up, we've got the Maestros. That is the base black house. Uh, these are kind of the vampire theater nerds uh, of the set, I guess. Uh, I guess they're also assassins and collectors. Pretty cool. We went up first to the legend Cormella Glamour Thief. One blue, black, red for a 2-4 legendary vampire rogue with haste at uncommon. Uh, it has pay one tapper. Add blue, black, red. Spend this mana only to cast instant and or sorcery spells. And when Cormella Glamour Thief dies, return up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. Now, we mentioned the theme of the set is casualty. So, you know, the Maestros are looking to sacrifice creatures. So Cormella, I guess, is one that you could sacrifice. Uh, I guess this mana buff here it fixes you perfectly. Only to cast instant or sorceries, but then you could, I mean, easily cast any casualty spell off of her. And then if it's casualty two or one, you could sacrifice her to it. And then when she dies, you'd be able to return an instant or sorcery from graveyard to hand. I don't think you're going to want to sacrifice your four mana threats too often to, to that kind of effect. But, I mean, she does let you rebuy something from the graveyard. It, it, this is the two for one just by itself, right? Yeah, and if you cast this on five, she does have haste. And given her two power is... Not exactly indicating that you should attack with her, but rather use that ability to also generate an extra three mana the turn you play her, right? So you play her on five instead of four, pay the one, tap her down, and then cast the three drop instant or sorcery. If you happen to have a charm or something lying around, you, you can instantly use it with her. And we'll get to the uh, Maestro's charm in just a second. Yeah, a cool design feels not quite right. I don't know. I don't, maybe this just isn't my kind of effect, but... Uh, it doesn't 
I don't know. It feels like there's a, a few boxes that just hasn't ticked. Like, what if it made like a token or two? And when the tokens died, it returned an instant or sorcery from graveyard to hand to really pair with the ca- casualties. I don't know. It's it's probably fine. Yeah, I guess that's, that's something that maybe would have worked. But I have a feeling that the set just needed the lack of like there are so many other like tokens running around and maybe because this set is so in this uh family is so instant or sorcery oriented that they didn't want extra creature triggers coming around they didn't want to make it easier to somehow get alliance in this um archetype something like that next up is maestro's charm that's blue black red it's an instant choose one look at the top five cards of your library put one of those cards into your hand and the rest into your graveyard each opponent loses three life and you gain three life where Maestro's Charm deals 5 damage to target creature or Planeswalker. So pretty much the most common mode of this is probably going to be 3 mana deal 5 to a creature or Planeswalker. That's a solid effect. Uh, every once in a while, you will top deck this when your opponent is at 2, and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> I guess we get to win it the easy way. Look at the top 5 of your library, 1 in your hand. That's a pretty solid effect. Maybe if you're in the late game and your opponent is at 4 and they don't have any good creatures, that helps you find the next big effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe a little less powerful, but still very strong. Right. Now here's one of those casualty cards we were talking about. Light them up. This is one and a red for a sorcery at common. It has casualty two, so to be clear, you have to sacrifice a, a creature with power two or greater, and if you do, you can copy the spell and choose new targets for the copy. It deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker. So right now you've just got a sorcery, one to red, deal two to a creature. That's pretty fine. You know, like that that's that's a card you'd put in your deck. And then if you happen to have a two two and you say, Well, I think I'd rather use this two two, I want to force this trade between this two two and their three two, you could sacrifice your two two to copy let them up uh, to kill both their two two and their three two. So I guess you're never really getting a two for one off of this unless you had a, a two power creature for free. Mostly this is gonna be a two for two, which I guess is strong. Eh. Yeah, I mean, it really depends what you're hitting with it, right? Like, two damage is not enough to deal with most big threats that you want to target, but it might deal with some pretty awesome early creatures. It's just sad to see Shock get kind of... Well, it's it's like sort of a nerf to Shock, but also not really, because you can just copy it, and then it's two Shocks in one, but you're losing a creature. It's it's really heavily going to matter, like, depend on whether or not you can get a creature you care to sacrifice for this. It's going to feel great if your opponent like arrests your creature and then you have a light up in hand and you're like, all right, let me see where I can start pointing this uh, get some more value. Then you're getting a clean X for one. But uh, yeah, I guess it depends on how often you want to sacrifice your, your two power creatures. Like you're not sacking Cormella for this, right? I don't think so, no. I, it'll, I think that depends really heavily on what cards you already have in the graveyard to get back with her. Yeah. Speaking of creatures to sacrifice, let's talk about the maybe the most unfortunate uh, soul in the set, the expendable lackey, who I have a feeling is going to get a get pretty beaten up throughout the, the course of the set. That's blue for a one-one common human citizen, and it has one of the blue exile expendable lackey from your graveyard. Create a one-one blue fish creature token with this creature can't be blocked. Activate only as a sorcery. So we found our favorite casualty one, sack fodder, right? I mean, this is three mana for two one ones spread across kind of two quote unquote cards, which is a very strong effect. That's something we've seen a lot of success with. This is a good rate. And I guess the fact that the fish is unblockable means that it can chip in for damage later. And then you could eventually just sack the fish to a different casualty effect. Yeah, I think this is going to be pretty in demand for anyone who, who's playing a pure Maestro's deck that has a lot of casualty cards, especially casualty one. Definitely, yeah. And then, like you said, those fish can kind of poke in and 
eke out a little bit of extra value in terms of damage to your opponent's face. And I do like that this is two creatures in one for the uh, for the casualty aspect. It's cool to see ways for a color combo that doesn't typically have too much token generation to actually get some meaningful tokens. Now, a note that I just kind of realized now, casualty doesn't exactly work like through, which I, I, I knew that, but it just kind of consciously registered in my head. So, for example, you couldn't sack two of these to light them up. You'd have to sack a single two-power creature. So this is strictly for enabling Casualty 1 cards, uh, which, you know, there are plenty of. So Casualty does rely on this kind of enabler payoff dichotomy, right? You need ha to have enough sacrifice fodder, enough of these 1, 2. There's some, like, Casualty 3 cards. You have to have these things that you're okay with leaving the battlefield and getting their sacrifice. And then you also need the payoffs, like the, the outlets. Notably, Blitzed creatures do kind of both of these things at once. They... <laughs> They both sacrifice themselves, uh, so maybe you care about the whole sacrifice part of it. Uh, or if you have a blitz creature, it's going to die into a card anyway. So you can blitz in a creature, have it attack with haste, have it hit them for a bunch of damage, and then sacrifice it to a, to a casualty effect. So uh, I think blitz and casualty are going to play really well together. I'm not totally sure how blue is going to fit into this. Maybe it's going to just provide little things like the, uh, the expendable lackey and, and maybe some good casualty cards. But uh, I, I think Blitz and Casualty are going to be a pretty strong combo when, when they pop off together. Yeah, that's a great point. You'll see Blitz cards in, you know, two of those three colors. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Speaking of Blitz, on to Riveteers, which is base red, but is our quote-unquote Jund family here, or black, red, green. And our first signpost in common here is Mr. Orfeo, the Boulder. The boulder is not impressed with Mr. Orfeo. <laughs> yeah, so Mr. Orfeo is one black, red, green for a 2-4 Rhino Warrior at Uncommon. And whenever you attack, double target creature's power until end of turn. Now, notably, he doesn't care if he's attacking. Just any time you attack, period, you can double any creature's power. That Even a creature that's not attacking. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the time, these effects will say, like, right. double target attacking creature's power. But nope, it can just... He'll double himself and not even get into the red zone. <laughs> if there was a, uh, I don't think there is, but there, if there was like a destroyed target creature with power four or greater effect, you could use this to double your opponent's stuff and then hit it with that. <laughs> That'd that would be, be kind of cool, great. but uh, I, I don't think that exists this time around. But clearly this archetype is kind of trying to get in the red zone. Like we don't have red white here to be aggressive. So we're looking to these colors, the you know, black, red, green to kind of, push that aggressive mechanic, look to this family, the Riveteers, to be the aggressive vector in this format. Next up, we have Riveteers Charm. This is black, red, green for the Riveteers Charm. It's an instant, and it says choose one. Target opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker they control with the highest mana value among creatures and planeswalkers they control. More on that in a minute. The second mode is exile the top three cards of your library until your next end step. You may play those cards. And the last is Exile Target Player's Graveyard. Now, that first one is worded really weirdly because it, it implies that you can have an opponent sacrifice either a creature or a Planeswalker. But then the way it's worded at the tail end there makes me think that no, whether they have a Planeswalker or a creature with the highest mana value, you have to sacrifice that type. Is that, is, am I reading that right? So say you have only a 4M four, four uh, mana value creature and a 5 mana value Planeswalker, you ha they have to sacrifice the Planeswalker. I think. Yeah, I believe so. I think it's checking the mana values of the con the combined conglomerate of permanents that are creatures right. or planeswalkers. So this is just a soul shatter, which was a rare back from ZNR, and it was a good one too. But this is just you know one third of your charm. So that that's a good start. 
Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a good effect. And I love these kinds of effects in terms of the, the edicts where your opponent gets to sacrifice something, but then you have the stipulation that it has to be something of a high mana value because then at least they're sacrificing something decent. A lot of the time, these edicts are pretty bad because they just sacrifice their worst creature, like their 1-1 citizen that's lying around that they didn't even pay a card for, and you're kind of like stuck with a mode that doesn't actually do anything. But this time around, it's going to actually get some value. And then obviously being able to draw cards in a, a color wedge that doesn't really get to do that too often by using that second mode to exile top three cards of your library and then play any of them is pretty great. It does give you an extra turn depending on when you cast this because you can cast this on your opponent's turn and kind of give yourself all that mana uh, at the beginning of your next turn to, to kind of uh, leverage being able to play those things. And then it, it lets you play them. So if you hit lands, you do have the option to play one of those as well. And I didn't I guess, even realize that this was... You may play those cards. Usually it's like pick one and play it. Uh, or like you, you get one of those. You could this could be like a straight up three for one if it works out properly. Yeah, it might this this might actually turn out to be like draw three cards. Yeah. Wow. And then the last mode, I guess sometimes you want to exile target player's graveyard. Maybe if you're up against a Maestro's opponent that is really trying to get value out of the instance and sorceries in their graveyard. Maybe you have an obscure opponent that's trying to get a bunch of cards in the graveyard to use for later. You may want to use this effect, but I imagine this is going to be the least used of the three. Once in a while, you'll blow out your blue-black opponent when they have like a bunch of power-up stanks to their five mana values that they, they worked all game to finally get their five mana values in the graveyard, and then you just, nope, it's gone. All right, our next card here is Night Clubber. This is one black black for a 2-2 human warrior at Uncommon. When Night Clubber enters the battlefield, creatures your opponents control get minus one, minus one until end of turn, and it has Blitz for two and a black. So a little bit easier. It's it's the same total mana value, but you lose a color there, which is going to matter a lot in this format. And so it's a little bit easier to cast on the Blitz side. It comes in, kind of weakens your opponent's team, and then presumably attacks for two and maybe doesn't get blocked or something, dies into a card. Seems fine. The fact that this is an uncommon tells me that this archetype's going to be maybe a little more powerful. This card doesn't sound very powerful to me, but it's an uncommon, and so that that tells me maybe it, maybe it's more powerful than it than it looks. I think there's a good number of X1s in this set, like three mana X1, ETB, make a 1-1, one, one, that type of deal. And I remember back, I feel like it was M20 or M... Whatever, whatever one had the mares. There was like Shield Mare... Uh, the water, the blue one, uh, the, whatever the black one was. I want to say nightmare, but I know that's wrong because that's that's something else. That was the same effect. It, it was like one black black for a. I want to say a two two pro white that uh, ETB gave all of your opponent's stuff minus one minus one, and it was a very strong uncommon. Uh, and that set was you know also kind of built around. Uh, it had a good number of one ones in it, and this set does too. So I think this is going to be the bane of all the citizens in the citizen deck. If someone makes a, a ton of 1-1s, one then your opponent slams this and attacks with it. Yeah, it's, that's strong. That's a big swing. Yeah, this actually is just an, like an upgraded Plague Mare. Plague Mare used Plague in... Mare, it wasn't yeah. blockable by white creatures either. So maybe this is... Oh, I guess this is like a little bit worse, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, our next card here is Mayhem Patrol. This is 1 in red for a 1-2 Devil Warrior at common. It has Menace. And whenever it attacks, target creature gets plus one, plus zero oh until end of turn. And then it blitzes for one and a red. So same casting cost to blitz. But if it's attacking by itself, it, it could be a 2-2 two, two with menace, really, at, at, the, at best. One thing that I see as a bit of a problem... So th this is this is good on turn two, right? This is a attacking, it's like a 2-2 two, two menace, and then it has the ability to put that plus one, plus oh elsewhere. Yeah. 
I probably would never blitz this on turn two. Like that, that feels just like losing an awful lot of uh, board presence. And maybe in the late game, if you need to, you can blitz this in. I see blitz as a as a powerful mechanic when your opponent is at low life totals. But otherwise, let's say you blitz and then you you what happens when you just start flooding out, like drawing into a bunch of lands. Like if you blitz, you sack, you draw your card, and it's just another land. Then you're like, well, I wish I had board presence. <laughs> like, uh, I think it's going to be very, very challenging to to figure out exactly when to blitz and when not to. And I think people are maybe going to start blitzing too frequently and then readjust back to, oh, we should probably still play out a normal curve and then blitz this thing in the mid to late game to give haste and and have a challenging combat step for my opponent. Yeah, I think that's super reasonable. I'm also not exactly sold on blitz. We'll see how it goes, and I'm expecting that this format in general is not going to be a very aggressive one. Three colors per vector kind of makes that the case, typically by default. And then also there are a lot of high mana value cards in this format, so I, I'll i be surprised if this whole Blitz thing kind of gets off. But yeah, we'll see. I mean, investing a low amount of mana for some damage, but then like not having that board presence, like you said, is kind of just not good. Um, especially if, yeah, you end up flooding out by drawing too many lands after blitzing your stuff, you're just going to feel awful and you do kind of get your card back. I think what you're going to want to do also, like whether you have cards that care about things dying will increase the likelihood that you blitz because you may just not have an opportunity. Like this mayhem patrol attacking by itself is not really going to pressure me into blocking it. And if you wanted it to die, I'm not going to let that happen uh, unless you really force me to. Right. So Maybe at that point you start blitzing things just to get extra value from other other effects. Maybe this isn't supposed to be an aggressive um, mechanic. Maybe this is supposed to be fodder for some other effect that cares about things dying. Yeah, that's true. One thing that this does remind me of: gather around, gather around, kids. Time to hear the tale of of red white cycling from Icoria. The basically the only way that deck could lose was if first of all you didn't have a zenith flare, but is if you started flooding out. And you could flood out if you cycled all of your stuff, but just kept like running into lands. So that led to red-white cycling decks with like 13, 14 lands sometimes. Uh, even fewer if you could pick up some of the cycling lands. Now, the problem that I see here is, is, is similar. You could just, what you're essentially doing is cycling. I, I think of this as Mayhem Patrol has cycling for one and a red. And when you cycle this, deal two to an opponent. And uh, that that's basically the card, right? It has some other, you know synergies and things built in atbs it, it does die so it triggers the sacrifice effects uh it, it's a creature itself and can be pumped but besides that i see this tending towards uh what happens if you just cycle away all of your stuff and you just wind up with a handful of lands and no cards in hand and nothing on your board yeah and the other downside there when you when you're kind of relating it back to the icoria cycling deck is that like all the cards in that deck would cycle for one colorless Blitz cards do not give you that kind of mana value advantage. They are, yeah. they are much slower. Yeah. All right. So we're not quite sold on uh, <laughs> on on Blitz, but I'm sure it'll be a cool mechanic anyway. I'm excited to try it out. Now let's get to one that I'm more excited about: the Cavaretti, uh, the, uh, the the cat Italian mafia, <laughs> which is just great. This is the base green uh, family. First up is Rocco Cavaretti Caterer, uh, X red white green for a legendary elf druid. It's a 3-1. When Rocco enters the battlefield, if you cast it, you may search your library for a creature card with mana value X or less, put it onto the battlefield, and shuffle. So you can play Rocco on turn 3, if you feel like it, as just a 3-mana three 3-1. Three you can play Rocco on turn 5, 
and go and get a 2-2 that comes with it. That's card advantage. That's good. You can go and get Rocco on, you know, if you top deck Rocco on turn like 8, go get like a 4 drop or, or 5 drop or something. And if you top deck this in the late game, you just slam like their biggest threat. Yeah, scales really well with the game. And this is two creature enters the battlefield effects, which, as I mentioned, Cabaretti really cares about double ETBs. It triggers a whole bunch of stuff. Rocco does that, and it's a tutor. Great. Really cool. Next up is Cabaretti Charm. This is red, green, white for an instant and uncommon. Choose one. Cabaretti Charm deals damage equal to the number of creatures you control the target creature or planeswalker. Mm, of all the removal spells so far, this is the weakest. I mean, even the one earlier that, that just gave a, a clear shot effect, giving a creature plus one, plus zero. Oh. Uh, that you can just do with one creature. If you have one creature, Cabaretti Charm is not doing you anything. But, you know, there's more to it. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and gain trample until end of turn is mode number two. That's kind of cool. A little overrun ability if you've gone really wide. And how are you going wide? Check out mode number three. Create two one one green and white creature tokens. They're citizens, I should mention, which is a, a valuable sub-theme. So, yeah. Like it's flexible. Uh, when when Cabaretti Charm is good, when it's dealing like five to six damage... It'll be amazing. But if you top deck this when you're behind, you'll really wish it was something else. Yeah, this definitely, at least so far, we do have a couple more to look at. But this seems to be the weakest of the charms that we've looked at so far. Because it really needs your board presence for two of the three modes to even be relevant. Luckily, if you don't have a board presence, the third mode will help you get there. But it's not going to be like a game-breaking board presence with two one ones hitting the field you will hit notably two creatures entering the battlefield with this one card so that is another thing to keep in mind but yeah you'll definitely want those alliance triggers off of that if you're going to just be spending three mana to make two one ones next up is exhibition magician that's a fun name two in a red for a two one human wizard at common it has when it enters the battlefield choose one create a one one green and white citizen creature token or create a treasure token nice I mean, th this is exactly what we're looking for. It's two creature enters the battlefield. And if you don't need that double creature ETV, make a treasure, which will give you fixing. It will give you ramp. I think treasures are going to be really important in the set. These are going to let you splash. So, for example, I mean, if you're already in red and green here, maybe you pick up like a Mr. Orpheo or you pick up a River Tears charm. And, you know, it seems like green is going to be able to, green and red actually, are going to be able to make these treasures pretty reliably. You could just play a Riveteers card in in, uh, in your Cabaretti deck, right? And if you have um, like five or six treasure sources, you wouldn't be worried about casting it. Maybe you can even pick up a, a fixing or dual lane to help too. It wouldn't surprise me if we see these four to five color piles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, once you get like some of the cards that do fixing for wedges, like all you need is like two of those really, and then you can start to overlap pretty easily. And... Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, you pick up two of those, like, not Evolving Wilds cards, but they're in separate wedges, and, like, you've got a ton of overlap there that's going to make it really, really easy to splash a third, or fourth color, rather. Yeah, I've been feeling those would be high picks. I mean, it's hard to be not playing at least two of any of the given colors in, in, in one of those uh, wedge Evolving Wilds. Next up, let's see an actual payoff for all these double creature ETBs. We've got Rumor Gatherer. That's one white, white for a 2-1 Elf Wizard at Uncommon. It is Alliance. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, draw one. If this is the second time this ability has resolved this turn, draw a card instead. So let's say you play Rumor Gatherer, and then you play Exhibition Magician after. You choose the 1-1 one, one, uh, mode. So you scry one when the Exhibition Magician comes in, and then you just draw a card off the Citizen. That's pretty good. 
Yeah. Now it's worth mentioning it is explicitly just the second time that this lets you draw the card. If you happen to get a third creature in the battlefield that turn, you go back to scrying. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I guess uh, if you have three creatures into the battlefield in one turn, then I guess you, you did it. And hopefully you have the, what is it, the the, the valet, the three drop red devil that like doubles its power whenever a creature enters the battlefield. I see it's going to be pretty easy to get multiple, multiple ETBs per turn. Yeah, it does seem that way. So overall, Cabaretti cares about creatures. Play lots of creatures, make a bunch of tokens, go wide. Uh, and particularly find ways to double trigger, uh, to get two ETBs in the same turn. Whether that's just by playing cheap creatures or by playing something more expensive ones like uh, Rocco or the Magician that make two creatures, it seems pretty reasonable to double trigger these things. Like, I have a feeling Rumor Gatherer isn't going to be hard to trigger at all. Now, now, those are the five families. So we've got through all the main houses. And weirdly enough, the allied colors kind of have their own sub-themes. So instead of having you know, five different wedges or, or uh, ten whole color pairs after this, they kind of leaned into the allied pairs that would share mechanics and share themes between their overlapping colors. So first up, white-blue is kind of a sub-theme. It's themed around counters, whether it's shield or plus one, plus one. Uh, and the brokers and obscura both care about counters. So why don't you start us off with, uh, with the old Celestial Regulator? Yeah, so Celestial Regulator is one white-blue for a Angel Advisor at common is a 2-3 with flying, and when it enters the battlefield, choose target creature you don't control and tap it. If you control a creature with a counter on it, the chosen creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. Seems pretty solid. It's a 3-mana 2-3 flyer, which is just decent rate, and then it can lock down a blocker for it or other creatures should you need. Just make sure you've got something with a counter on it to really get that effect, because otherwise, yeah, maybe you're blo- you're you're getting rid of a blocker for one un- for one turn, basically, but they're just going to untap it on their turn. So you want to try to get the maximum value by having literally any counters on your creatures. This is a huge network disruptor, right? Like, at worst, this is a three-mana 2-3 tap one of the things down. Sometimes this will be exactly the card you want to top deck to win the game if they have, you know, that their one flyer that's keeping back your board. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when this is just a flying, beefier Frost Links, then that's just, that's just stupid. Yeah, definitely. Love the art on this card, too, as well. Mm, yeah. Next up, we have Exotic Pets. This is one white-blue for an instant at Uncommon. Create two 1-1 one, one blue fish creature tokens with this creature can't be blocked. Then for each kind of counter among creatures you control, put a counter of that kind on either of those tokens. Super weird stuff going on here. So you're checking for yeah. any kinds of counters and then putting one of those counters on one of those tokens. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> and I should say one of those counters per counter type. So like if there's a shield counter on something and a 1-1 one, one counter on something, you get to put both of them on one of the tokens this card makes. Weird. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to picture a curve here. Maybe on turn two, you play the one of the white one one that puts a plus one plus one counter on something. And then you play exotic pets on turn three. And then you get one 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 unblockable and a one one unblockable with a counter on it. Yeah. This is also going to be, a, I mean, this is good in the blue white deck but it's also gonna be fantastic in in brokers or you could splash it into cabaretti if you can manage to find a nice way to splash because this makes two creatures it's gonna help you do things with counters if you can get them on your things so it's gonna be an interesting one thing i will mention though has nothing to do with the gameplay of this card but is it just me or is the art style for this card just out of place like i did not think this card looked like it belonged in the set at all it does look different than what we're used to for sure i'm trying to figure out exactly what's going on I'm pretty sure this is part of the uh, the story. 
where like the fish ate the the guy uh, like they, they disappeared someone and had the fish eat them like isn't that the flavor here that the fish are eating all the other creatures and they're taking all of their like abilities and counters but those fish look unsettling don't they yeah a little bit i don't know there's just something about the not that it's bad art but just that the style is like different than all the other creatures that i've seen yeah it almost feels like this is a zoomed in portion of a much larger picture uh maybe that's part of the story maybe that was the art direction i don't know yeah Next up, we have Metropolis Angel. This is two white blue for a 3-1 angel soldier at uncommon. It has flying, and whenever you attack with one or more creatures with counters on them, draw a card. I'm much more sold on that curve I just described now. If you can go the 2-2 oh, yeah. into the exotic pets into the Metropolis Angel, yeah, that's gross. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really nice. Notably, I mean, I kind of wish Celestial Regulator fit in there somewhere too. Where like you're tapping one of their things down, and then you get a bunch of creatures with counters on them, and then you swing out with the uh, with the Metropolis Angel, and you draw a card. Like that sounds really good. Now you're, again, you're not drawing multiple cards like per creatures attacking or anything. You just draw one card per attack step, but you have to attack with a creature with a counter on it. Doesn't seem too hard. A lot of these creatures seem to be. I mean, if you've got one of these unblockable fish or uh, one of these shield counter creatures, they seem pretty well equipped to attack. Yeah, for sure. Next up. My least favorite thing in the set, unsurprisingly, blue-black. This is five mana values in your graveyard. And this is the Obscura and Maestro's kind of two-color pair. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just, just first of all, th this isn't... I, I hate mill. I hate self-mill. I hate milling your opponent. This cares about having five distinct mana values. Just think about the last game of Limited you played. At what turn did you have five mana values in your graveyard like five to first of all have five cards in your graveyard that doesn't usually happen until turn six or seven and then having five distinct ones that's even harder like what if you only have a few two drops or three drops or four drops in your deck like and and right. the higher you get the less you want to have those big effects or those big like mana values in your graveyard and then you want to get them back somehow like and that turns off this ability i i don't like this ability at all uh, I'm very suspicious uh, about how good this is going to be. It's an interesting one for sure. Now, anybody who's been listening to the show for a while knows that I love mill, whether it's self mill or otherwise. And I think there might actually be a mill deck in this format. There are some cards at rare and mythic that like make your opponent mill their whole, like half their deck. And I, they're like actually, re I think there's one that repeats that effect. I think you might be able to put an actual mill deck together in this format, though it'll happen rarely. The thing with the five mana values in Graveyard, that ability or check, I guess, because it's not really an ability, but that check kind of incentivizes you to have a flat curve where you want like evenly spread out mana values so you, you have a lot of everything to kind of fill your graveyard with, which is bad for playing Magic. Like you don't want a flat curve, you want an actual curve. And to that end, I mean like how many two drops are you going to play? How many three drops are you going to play? How many four drops, right? So... At some point, this is just like really unreasonable, and I don't think this is going to be an archetype that you care too much about that particular effect in. Maybe it'll still be a good archetype for other reasons, but I don't think this five types in grave or five mana values in graveyard is going to be a big pushing factor to to move into this archetype or anything. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the cards. We've got Snooping Newsy, which is blue black for a two two rogue at common. When it enters the battlefield, mill two cards. Okay, so like, I guess it's spotting you a little bit, but this just seems so hard to set up. What if you've milled like half your deck and you still only have 
like four types or three types or uh, uh, values rather because values is much harder to get than types right like types types that was delirium you could do that pretty easily uh, and there were like ways to do that there were artifacts you could sacrifice stuff like that but i don't know i'm, I'm this is this seems like a trap to me uh syndicate infiltrator is next to oh i didn't even finish reading the other one it, it was just so bad i got distracted blue black for a 2-2 and just watch this is gonna be like one of the best commons in the set uh, ETV mill two cards, as long as there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard, Snooping Newsy gets plus one, plus one, and has lifelink. So you go to all this effort, and it's like turn 10, and you finally milled your fifth mana value, and all of a sudden, your outcla- your long outclass 2-2 two two is now a 3-3 three three lifelink. Yeah, no. that is not <laughs> doing it for me. I don't know whether to think that means it's going to actually end up being easier to do this than I think it is. Or if this is just a bad archetype that you should avoid. Like right now, I've got this at like top of my list of archetypes to not try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. I mean, you have to warp your mana base to play this. Playing a blue black card on turn two isn't easy. I mean, there's some good rare ones too. We're just talking about the commons and uncommons, but I don't know. Next up, Syndicate Infiltrator. This is two blue black for a three three vampire wizard at uncommon. It is flying. And again, as as long as there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard, it gets plus two, plus two. So you get a four mana five, five flyer. It's better. Yeah, I mean, that's good, <laughs> you know? but like, you're not getting that on turn four. No, not even close. Uh, imagine, like, if you're if you're doing this, if you're going snooping newsy into random three drop into syndicate infiltrator, when are you milling? Like, what what? where are you getting the graveyard cards? You're not cracking fetch lands. You're not getting... There's no, like, zero mana mill five uh, to yourself. Like, if you just curve out like this, you could curve out with these underpowered, kind of not, no, there's no card advantage here, just, like, these these junk cards. And then, when when does the mill happen? When do you get your five mana values? Do you trade these off so that you can get your five mana values and then you never get the good part of them? Like, yeah, I don't know. Last up, Taint and Indulgence. Blue, black for an instant. Draw two cards, then discard a card unless there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. This, I don't even think, is going to matter. Like, this is just a, a pretty solid draw spell. And if you happen to be in blue, black, and you can take this and play this, you'll just take it and play it. It's a two mana draw, two discard one. Yeah, notably, like, though, this is actually... The downside on this card is actually an upside because if you're in this color pair... Like, you'll play this in any of the, the blue-black wedges as well, just because it's a good card. But if you're in strictly the blue-black vector, and you care about getting those cards and those mana values in your graveyard, you can selectively discard a card that gets you a new mana value in the graveyard. And so that'll help enable the rest of your other cards that care about having five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. So that's kind of an upside, really. Yeah, this looks like it needs a looter. You know, like, I feel like this deck really, I don't know if there is a common looter in this set. It feels like this deck really needs a, a consistent loot outlet that gives you that control and that flexibility. You're not going to have five copies of Tainted Indulgence, right? Like, you're going to want to get something that gives you more control over the mana values in your graveyard. Count this as my, my least favorite thing in the set. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is a looter. There is a looter in this format. It's a Hypnotic oh, Grifter. There? Yeah, Hypnotic Grifter. It's a blue for a 1-2 human rogue at Uncommon. And it's it. You pay three colorless to connive, basically, and that that lets you get the loot effect. Yeah, so I guess I guess conniving does loot for you. I guess everything is a looter <laughs> in that way. I was picturing like an actual merfolk looter or something. But that is a repeatable way to do it. You pay three mana and you can connive. There's no tap to that effect, so you can as long as you have three mana to spend, you can use it. 
Yeah, so I guess if you're curving out with connive effects between these, I don't know. Like this feels like it's a lot of hoops to jump through. Are you want are you going to want to discard your 4 and 5 drops just to turn on this like kind of mediocre buff? You'd rather just play them out and then maybe you play them and try to trade them off then? Like I don't know. This feels like a lot of hoops to jump through for for a, a small amount of payoff. Next up we've got black red which is as we've gotten very very used to the sacrifice theme. And this is the Maestro's Riveteers kind of overlap archetype here. Our first uncommon, or sorry, first signpost common for this archetype is Body Dropper. It's black red for a 2 2 Devil Warrior at common. Whenever you sacrifice another creature, put a plus one, plus one counter on Body Dropper. And then you can pay black red, sack another creature, and it gains menace until end of turn. This is a solid little two drop. I'm really happy with this card. And if you can get that sacrifice stuff going, this is what we were talking about when we were looking at. I believe it was Maestro's, where you kind of want to be able to sacrifice these creatures and figure out ways to get that casualty kind of effect going. This is a this is a solid payoff for having casualty cards in your deck. Oh yeah, casualty and blitz pair super well with body dropper. And, and this gives another way to sacrifice creatures in case you don't have the casualty cards uh, in your hand and you want them, uh, you want to get those sacrifice effects still. Yeah, I mean, this this just does it all. This is better than some of the uh, the signpost uncommons we've seen in other Blackbird decks. This reminds me of Slaughter Priest of Mogus, uh, and that was a, only a temporary buff. That one got plus two plus so. This puts a counter on itself. Uh, really strong. Yeah, also I love the flavor text. Kill count? I lost track years ago. Yeah. Next up we have Fatal Grudge. This is black red for a sorcery at uncommon. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a non-land permanent. Each opponent chooses a permanent they control that shares a type with the sacrifice permanent and sacrifices it. Draw a card. Hmm. Interesting. Kind of a removal spell. This has that edicts problem where you'll sacrifice your 1-1 and and, uh, they'll sacrifice their 1-1 and you'll draw a card. I guess at worst it cycles, right? But when you don't have any of the fodder and they have lots of fodder, this is bad and you should probably sideboard it out. This will definitely be good in some mashups maybe against decks where they only have a few beefy creatures. This is really good against shielded creatures uh, because, you know, this this doesn't care about the shield counter at all. Yeah, it also gets any permanent type that's not a land. So if, like, you happen to have an enchantment that you don't need anymore and they have an enchantment you'd like to get rid of, if you have a Planeswalker you, for some reason, want to sacrifice to kill their Planeswalker, you know, whatever. Artifacts, you know, you this what I'm expecting this might be pretty good at is, like, your opponent just has some equipment and you've got some treasures lying around. You're like, sack this treasure, blow up one of your equipments. Yeah, eh. that doesn't good. I, I, look I mean, like, I'm not high sacking, on it. But. Yeah, I look forward to uh, using this and sacking my Obnixilis uh, to destroy their <laughs> Elspeth. <laughs> I'll go. let you know when that comes up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let me know. Next up, we have Forge Boss. This is two black red for a human warrior at Uncommon. It's a 3-4. Whenever you sacrifice one or more other creatures, Forge Boss deals two damage to each opponent. This ability triggers only once each turn. Okay, a 4-mana 3-4 that shocks your opponent once a turn? Sounds pretty solid to me. That is scary. This is like Mayhem Devil all over again. At least they fixed it because it only triggers once a turn. All right, next up is red-green. So we've got treasures. This is the Riveteers slash Cabaretti overlap. So time to spend all that treasure we've been talking about. This looks like a really fun archetype, and it's probably my most anticipated one. I guess red-green is just the treasure color now, uh, which is funny because green tends to hate artifacts, but I guess it's okay with ramp. <laughs> Who knows? So first up, Jetmir's Fixer. This is red-green for a 2-2 common. It's a cat warrior. 
You can pay red-green to give it plus one, plus one until end of turn. If mana from a treasure was spent to activate this ability, put a plus one, plus one counter on the fixer instead. So already you've got a two mana, two, two with two mana to pump it. Like, that's just good threat of activation. This can attack into a two, three or a three, three pretty confidently. And uh, if you happen to have a treasure, it'll stay bigger permanently. Cool. Yeah, I like effects like this because they give you a temp, they, they turn your temporary resource into a permanent resource in a way. Like, I love converting treasures into something that sticks around. So being able to grab the counters from this is pretty awesome. Oh, uh, I've got a nice way for you to convert treasures into something that sticks. How about security rocks, which is two red green for a 5-4 Rhino Warrior at Uncommon. So if you pay that, you know, that's fine. You know, five mana five four, or four mana five four, that's just like a pretty solid beefy card. But uh, you may also pay red green rather than pay this spell's mana cost. Spend only mana produced by treasures to cast it this way. This feels like the Ardent Electromancer from ZNR, where if you could chain several Ardent Electromancers and then finish like a, a Shatter Skull Smasher or something like that, then you just had this overwhelming board presence on turn four or five. If you could play like a 2-2 that makes a treasure or like a 3-mana card that makes a treasure, if you can curve out into this, it's going to be one of the fastest and, and most brutal curves in the format. A 2-mana 5-4? Like, what? Yeah, it's a really good thing this card doesn't have trample. <laughs> oh, yeah. Th this is going to be getting chumped a bunch. And I mean, a 5-4, that's huge. Like, this is almost always going to require two creatures to block it or an actual removal spell. Like, very few 2-mana kill spells to deal with this. For sure. Last up, we've got Stimulus Package. Love it. Uh, two red-green for an enchantment at Uncommon. When Stimulus Package enters the battlefield, create two treasure tokens, and you can sacrifice a treasure to create a 1-1 one, one green and white citizen creature token. So this is a way to just instantly make two creatures, and then any other time you would get treasure for the rest of the set, or the rest of the uh, of the game, you can just convert that straight into a uh, into a citizen. You can do this at instant speed, so you can activate Alliance at instant speed. Pretty cool. Or you could just use that two mana to immediately slam your security rocks. So uh, very flexible. Or this is like a four mana ramp spell. Yeah, I love the like, well, package that this has, right? It's it's kind of all in one. You get your you get your treasures. You can use them for whatever you want to. But if you have nothing to spend them on, hey, make some one ones while you're at it and maybe trigger some Alliance stuff. Yeah, pretty awesome. This feels a little bit like energy where you're getting this resource that's almost impossible for opponents to interact with and you have really interesting ways to convert it into value, whether you're just using like, you could play a six drop at the turn after stimulus package. S seven drop, I guess, right? Because it's it's ramping you too, uh, depending on, on what kind of land situation you've got. I don't know, th th this feels strong. Uh, opponents can't do anything about it and you're getting fixing, ramp, creatures, or other value from sacrificing these, like... I'm, I'm very interested in this specific archetype. Yeah, I think one of my bucket list items for this set is going to be to cast the, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but the rare artifact that lets your lands tap for to create treasures. See uh, how yeah, fast yeah. I can yeah. get that card down. <laughs> like, do you think it's possible to play that on turn three or four? I don't know about three or four, but I mean, there is a, a one other, a red green two, two that taps to make a treasure. So that that's kind of like a mana dork for this format. Now, I, at first, that card, it, I think it's six, it's like five and a green for it. It's like S Smuggler's Den or Outlaw's Den, whatever it is. Six mana, your lands gain, tap to make a treasure. And that looks like a bit of a meme, but just look at like Stimulus Package, right? That means your lands tap to make a 1-1 one, one Citizen. That's unbeatable. Like, that's really <laughs> that's, good, yeah. That's, that is, that no deck could beat that. Like, if you're tapping, you're, like, you have seven lands in play or something. So that's seven 1-1s. One, next turn, seven 1-1s. One, next turn, seven, like... Forget the cards in your hand. 
you, you don't need them anymore. And you're also mm. triggering all of your alliance abilities, and you're getting tons of creature ETBs. Yeah, I, I'm very excited to, to, to open and uh, slam one of those, whatever the thing is called. All right, next up here, we've got green-white. This is the citizen's archetype, or vector, and is the cab-ready broker's kind of overlap. And our first card here is Civil Servant. This is green-white for a 2-3 cat citizen at uncommon. Whenever Civil Servant attacks, you may tap another untapped citizen you control. If you do, Civil Servant gets plus one, plus zero, and gains a lifelink until end of turn. So, essentially, if you have any other untapped citizens, you can tap them when this card attacks to make it a 3-3 lifelink until end of turn. Isn't this just such an easier way to make a 3-3 lifelink? Right? Like, you have to jump through so many fewer hoops. You don't have to discard your good stuff. You don't have to worry about self-milling or any of that nonsense. You just play your normal creatures. Like, tons of creatures in green and white and even red are just citizens so for example if you curve this into the uh into the, the magician the exhibition magician and have it etb and make a citizen you tap the citizen make this a 3-3 lifelink and just slam with it yeah yeah i mean the snooping newsy is looking at the civil servant here and being like wait a second maybe i went into the wrong profession that's <laughs> yeah, never too late to enter politics right so our next card here is Darling of the Masses. This is two green white for an elf citizen at uncommon. It's a two four. Other citizens you control get plus one plus zero. Oh. Whenever Darling of the Masses attacks, create a one one green and white citizen creature token. Pretty solid. I love cards like this, like just a, an army in a can. So when you attack with Darling of the Masses, it makes your one one, and then you could play just your normal creature for turn to trigger any alliance cards that you have laying around. Uh, and that would just that be your two creatures. I, I'm particularly focused on getting that double that double trigger, and this does it. This guarantees you're getting pretty much two creatures as long as you're playing one out normally and attacking with the darling. So it is just a two four. Like it's it's going to need a little bit of help to, to get in. But remember, it's making two ones rather than just one ones. It also and doesn't need to deal does damage. Well. It doesn't need to deal mm. damage to the opponent. It just needs to attack. Yeah, that's true. Now, if you can make a bunch of two ones, then your red casualty cards go way up in value. Because then you're actually, you know, sacrificing something that you just got for free rather than like a two mana two two you put mana into. Yeah. Now, notably, um, we're putting emphasis on the alliance triggers coming in pairs. They don't actually have to. They they only care about one creature coming into play. So you can get the one trigger off of this. Um, but, you know, we're all about the value here. So. Oh, yeah. We're maxing out. All right. Our next card here is Ceremonial Groundbreaker. This is one green white for an equipment, art, an artifact equipment at uncommon. Equipped creature gets plus two plus one and has trample. Equip citizen one or otherwise equip three. That's a massive difference. Yeah. <laughs> equip one versus yeah. equip, equip three is huge. And even if you're putting this on a token that like your darling of the masses created, you're turning your one one into say you have the darling of the masses out into what a four two like with trample. Trample. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah, that's a real card. If you have a lot of ways of reliably making citizens. Just slam this. Uh, if you have enough of those magician-type effects where you are making two creatures per one, uh, equipment gets better when you have plenty of smaller creatures around and you want to augment them. So this would allow you to maybe suit up one creature, one like one of those 1-1 one, one citizens per turn, and just start attacking them. So where this is worse is if you have a bunch of, like, go-tall creatures. I don't know, if you wound up with a bunch of blitz creatures, you probably wouldn't want this because you're probably not blitzing, equipping to a non-citizen, getting in. Yeah, that seems highly inefficient. Re-equipped. Yeah, but if you are building out a big wide board, this seems like a like a perfect fit in Cabaretti. So we've got a few other cards to talk about. Let's talk about a multicolored card. 
Courier's briefcase. This is one in a green for an artifact with subtype treasure at uncommon. So when it enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 one, one green and white citizen. Okay, so it's it's one of the green for a 1-1. One, one. You just get that. And it has Sacrifice Courier's briefcase add one mana of any color. So the first time I read this, I was pretty stunned because that just seems like nonsense. Even with the third clause, which is pay white, blue, black, red, green, tap, sacrifice it, draw three cards. So notably, this can't be one of the treasures used to, to pay for that. You have to tap and sacrifice the briefcase. So you need to put five mana of different colors into the briefcase in order to sacrifice it and draw three. A little bit of Path of the World Tree vibes here. This does make a treasure. It is, it is in itself a treasure, but of course if you sacrifice this on the way, you won't get that, that big sack and draw. And it does make a 1-1. One, one. So I remember distinctly telling you when I saw this, this, this looks like it sucks. But then I remembered Wily Goblin, the, uh, the red red from, from Ixalan, I think it was, or one of the Ixalans, which wasn't the worst. That was just a red red for a 1-1 one, one, enters the battlefield make a treasure. It turns out that ramp and that fixing can actually be valuable. So, thoughts? Is this great or is this just junk? I think it's pretty bad, but it will be amazing when it's good. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. When, when someone actually gets to activate this and like five minute, but then it's like five minute draw three. I mean, I guess. No, the problem with that though is that like, how are you going to cast those cards you just drew? You're basically going to draw the cards and pass the turn and then maybe you die on the, on the crackback or something. Like, I think it's too expensive, but if you need a creature and fixing on two, it's going to do that. You'd probably just rather play a two drop, but <laughs> um, it does give you fixing and a creature for one card at, at just two mana. So this is a very strange card, and it isn't uncommon. If it was that bad, we would have just seen it common, right? I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious to see how this one plays out. I'm gonna try it before I make any final judgments on it. A colorless card that I want to discuss: ominous parcel. This is one mana, just generic, for an artifact common. You can pay two, tap, sacrifice it, for search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, put it in your hand, and shuffle. Or pay five, tap, sack it, it deals four damage to target creature. There's not a lot of like colorless commons that we thought were worth talking about. There's some junk in there, too. There's like some weird R uh, equipment and some artifact creatures that don't seem great. But this one stuck out to me because it does two very important things. It fixes mana, and it's a removal spell. And sure, it's not efficient. It's a five mana deal for which have kind of fallen off the edge in recent sets. And, you know, you don't have to pay one to put this in play in the first place. Your opponent can play around it. They can make you sacrifice it. They could remove it somehow. But sometimes you're just going to need this on turn two for those really mana intensive decks. I hope this is the type of format where this is solid, where this ends up being like something good. And this is colorless removal. Like it is a colorless five mana deal for I mean, it's kind of like a, a giant crossbow, right? The uh, fr from uh, from Midnight Hunt. Yep. I mean, that ended up being pretty pretty solid. Yeah, the difference there was that it like literally just killed any werewolves, and that that true. did make a bit of a difference. But werewolves weren't very good in that format, so it was kind of mostly just a bolt. I I like that this does two very different things for a card that can be put into any deck. It, it will serve if you need the fixing. This will do it again. Not super efficient, but it will do it. And then if you don't need the fixing, and you know maybe you play this on one. And you're like, well, if I don't, you know, draw my third color on turn two, I'll just sack this, get my third color, and I'll go on with my life. If you happen to draw into that land, then you're like, well, I guess my backup plan is later I'm going to dump some mana into this and kill a creature. Sounds good. Yeah, it's a, it's a modal spell, really. Uh, it's a modal spell that you play revealed, but 
you know, it's it's not the best gift either. I mean, look at those horns. There's probably a, a devil walking around missing those somewhere. Not so much. The flavor text says the rest of Van Halo's assistant arrived over the following week. Oh, so uh, at least they're not around to miss them. <laughs> All right, and then lastly, no. we want to kind of cover um, a few cycles that we have in this set. Well, I say lastly, but we are going to cover the top commons in each color as well. But we wanted to make sure we talked about these cycles, the first of which is color matters, sort of. And each of the colors have one of these cards. We're looking at the green one here just for example, but each of the colors has one, as is the case with all of these cycles. This one here is Bouncer's Beatdown. It's two and a green for an instant at Uncommon. And the part that is really the cycle is this spell costs two less to cast if it targets a black permanent. And all the other ones in the cycle target different colors to get the cost reduction, but they all do the same thing. Uh, two less to cast if they target a permanent of a specific color. And in this case, Bouncer's Beatdown deals X damage to target creature or Planeswalker, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. If that creature or Planeswalker would die this turn, exile it instead. Yeah, so... Nice. It's a nice cycle. Uh, these are all target the enemy color uh, of the base color of the, of the card. And from what we could tell just by looking at them all, we're not going to go over all of them. Maybe for another episode we can. But it looks like they're all pretty solid rates. Like, this is an effect that you're pretty okay with paying three mana for. And then if your opponent happens to be on black, it's just even better. So this isn't like one of the other specific... Uh, color hosing cycles in the past where it only targets that color or uh, it's it's overcosted unless they're playing that color this is a fine rate just as a whole this is just going to be like a three mana deal three uh, a lot of the time or three mana deal four or something like that and then sometimes it's going to be like a one mana deal four so this is more just like baseline it's good it's fine it's solid and then every once in a while it's incredible so i, I would take these fairly highly yep our next cycle here is the play from exile cycle um, and we have Sparrow's Adjudicators as the broker's version of this. They're all tricolored, so they fit into one of the five families. Sparrow's Adjudicators, it's two green, white, blue for a 4-4 cat citizen at common. When Sparrow's Adjudicators enters battlefield, target creature and opponent controls can't attack or block until your next turn. And then this is the part that is the cycle. To exile this card from your hand, target land gains tap to add one of the three colors from this particular family. So in this case, it's tap, add, green, white, or blue. Until, Spar uh, until Sparrow's Adjudicators is cast from exile, you may cast Sparrow's Adjudicators for as long as it remains exiled. I love this cycle because it does exactly what you want it to do. They're cards that are hard to cast with high mana values. In fact, Sparrow's Adjudicators at two green, white, blue is the cheapest of the cycle. And they let you pay two generic mana. So if you don't have the fixing, it will get you the fixing to exile this and turn one of your lands into a triome or like a tricolored land and then you can just play this later like i love this this is actually it's actually better to play this on two with the exile effect because then it's out of your hand it can't be disrupted by some of obscura's hand disruption stuff like it's really solid this this sort of cycle i'm a big fan we have triomes at home type of right, deal right <laughs> the try at home the try up uh, whatever you know what i mean <laughs> the, the triumphs of this and these are pretty good so i'm picturing a lot of games are going to go like turn one tap land like a common duel which is another cycle which we'll get to in a second the, the the common duels and turn two you play an untapped land pass end of their turn exile your whatever your big thing uh to give your basic like perfect fixing and then you're pretty well set to slam a three color card on turn three yeah, yeah. And and again, you are taking your turn two off to do this if you're doing it on curve, 
But then you set up your turn three to play a charm or one of your, perhaps one of your signpost uncommons or one of the signpost commons that we'll see. Like, it's it's great. I mean, it sets you up for the, the three colors you need. And so these kind of act, and these are at common. This whole cycle is at common. So these are kind of hidden common trilands in a way, but then they turn into big creatures later that do relevant things. So I, yeah, I, again, really high on this cycle. I think they're great. I don't know from a pick order perspective how highly I'll take them, but I kind of look at them as tricolored lands. So I probably will take them fairly highly. Our next cycle here is the sort of alternate casting costs. They, they cost the base color and then we'll, they have an activated ability that has hybrid mana of the other two in that um, family's color wheel. So the one we're looking at here is Maestro's Initiate. This is two and a black for a 3-1 human citizen at common. And then has an activated ability of four and then blue-red hybrid. And exile it from your graveyard. Draw two cards and discard a card. Nice. You know, like these have a, uh, a nice effect even after they've already traded off. Some of these are better than others. I think the white one is like a, like a zero four or something. <laughs> And you can pay like five to make it a five five for term. Uh, that's less good. But now, like, this is just a, a three mana three one that's going to have an effect later in the game. These are pretty low picks, I think. And the fact that they're flexible, like, you could put this in a variety of decks because it could be any, in any uh, blue black deck or black red deck. It gives it flexibility. I think these are going to be filler cards for the set, but an interesting cycle to discuss anyway. And then we have our cycle of not evolving wilds cards they all have different names so it's kind of hard to refer to them i'm curious what the community is going to come up with as a name for these we always hear like you know like gain lands whatever like we give lands names so i'm curious to hear what this cycle gets but the one we have here to kind of showcase them is broker's hideout they're all named after the families and they come in at common and when broker's hideout enters the battlefield sacrifice it if you do search your library for a basic forest plains or island card put it onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle, and you gain one life. Now, notably, you don't get to choose when this gets sacked. It sacks on ETB, so, like, you can't play like you would in Evolving Wilds, play past the turn and wait until your opponent's done to do it. Um, you do it, it just sacrifices right away, and then you pick one of the three color, uh, one of the three basics from that particular family's color palette. So, yeah, and then you gain one. I think these are solid. People seem to be down on them at first, and I don't really understand why. I mean, they're they're still just going to be Evolving Wilds in your three-color decks, and you're going to want them. Yeah, this reminds me of the equivalent of Panoramas from the, the old Shards sets. Not the most efficient, because, again, this does wind up with eventually getting you just a basic land. So this isn't perfect fixing. Sometimes you're going to have uh, some pretty tough-to-cast cards in your hand, and you, maybe you, you have, like, two planes, and you're not sure if you should go get the forest or the mountain. And sometimes you'll pick wrong, and that's going to hurt. So this is one step in the fixing. Uh, the, the, the big cycle uh, of, of the exile commons, that's going to be a, a big part of the fixing. But the last step is the common dual lands, which, you know, they're, they're pretty great. Uh, these, again, are, are kind of themed around the, the, the color pairs. And uh, just to read one off, we've got Tramway Station here. That's the black-red one. It enters the battlefield tapped. It's common. Uh, you can tap it to add black or red, and you can pay two black-red, tap, sacrifice it, and draw a card. So this is pretty similar to the uh, the campuses that we had in Strixhaven, except now instead of using the format of the scry every turn, you'll just get one activation, but you draw a card off of it. I like these more than the campuses. I think I do too. We'll see how they actually end up playing out. I mean, getting to scry every turn was nice, but drawing cards is better. 
So I'm going to be uh, pretty happy to crack one of these when I've got a ton of treasures running, laying around and I don't actually need the land or uh, maybe I'm flooding out or something and this is going to shore up my hands. So pretty happy to see uh, see this kind of effect and we'll see how, or how likely you are to actually want to dump the mana into this. It seems like there's a lot to do in the late game in this format, so maybe you won't be activating these as often and maybe that's why it's draw a card because you wouldn't really bother to scry every turn. We shall see. So let's jump into our top commons for each color. Now, actually, in creating this list, we noticed that the individual colors aren't that deep. There's a lot of design space that got used up by multicolored cards or card with activated abilities in, in other colors or things like that. So the like strictly mono white cards, let's just say the third best mono white card is is significantly worse than the third and even the second and the second is pretty far behind the first i think everyone already knows what i'm talking about but we decided to just go with two of each color because the uh, unlike normal sets there's not as many and, and the individual monocolored cards aren't quite as deep let's just you know get to it we all want to talk about inspiring overseer which is the clear front runner for the best white common everyone on, on magic twitter has been losing their minds about this and talking about common power creep I, I guess i don't know limited grinders out there really care about that now um I don't know. I like it. It's a white card that says draw on it. <laughs> like, uh, I think this is great. So it's two and a white for a two one. It's a common. It's an angel cleric and it is flying. When it enters the battlefield, you gain one life and draw a card. Yup. Yeah. I, I'm kind of speechless. You're just not used to seeing white cards that, uh, that look like blue cards and do good things. Yep, it's okay. That, yep, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, life gain isn't really a thing in this set. I think there's one uncommon that references uh, it puts like counters on itself uh, if you've gained or lost life, but it's not like a whole black white archetype built around life gain or anything. This is just a value card and it's a very good one, uh, but this also gets blanked. It dies to ping abilities. It's, it's, it is good to recur uh, or pick up and, and replay somehow. Yeah, I like it. I, I think you'll play as many of these as you can get. Like, why not? <laughs> Yeah, of course not. I mean, there is literally, and we talked about this last week, there is a card called Nimble Larcenist that is the Obscura colors, blue, black, white, that is a 2-1 flyer that, like, takes a card from your opponent's hand. This just seems, and that's an uncommon. This just seems so much better, and it's a common. <laughs> and it's one color. Like, what? <laughs> Easier to cast, better effects. Love it. Now, uh, in second place, I originally put Hold for Ransom. And this is the arrest of the set. This is one in the white. It's an aura, a common. It is enchant creature. Enchanted creature can attack or block and has pay seven. Hold for ransoms. Controller sacrifices it and draws a card. Activate only as a sorcery. So eventually they can like, you know, pay to cycle their, their uh, arrested card away. This seems really good for aggressive white decks uh, as this functionally is two mana to uh, remove a, a, a good blocker. I mean, this this trades really well with larger creatures. Then again, it also has some things it's really bad against. This is really bad against casualty cards. And this is really bad if your opponent is doing the blitz thing where their creatures don't really stick around to block. Because blitz, if you're just blitzing your creature, it's never blocking. It just dies at the end of the turn. So I did put this at first. And I feel like this will be the best for the matchups in which it is good. For example, this is amazing against brokers where you just slap this on their, their giant, like the, the, the rocks we talked about earlier, the, uh, the six mana six, three that comes in with a shield counter on it. This is a fantastic answer for that. However, in the other half of the matchups where your opponent, I mean, also they can just sacrifice this to like casualty. That's pretty bad. Uh, they're, they're ransomed creature. So in the other half of the matchups, I feel like the best white, the second best white common will be Kill Shot, which is just the, the classic two and a white instant destroy target attacking creature. Again, that doesn't pair super well against 
I guess like the the uh, the, the blitz stuff because they'll just you know still get their card off of it and it doesn't pair super well against counters. But this is probably better for the more conventional attacking decks. I don't know. White White's removal is a little shaky, but I think the inspiring overseer is good enough to make up for it. Yeah, definitely. And hold for ransom is also a little weird because it mentions that its controller sacrifices it. You like if you cast this card targeting an opponent's creature, you are still the controller of hold for ransom. So like when your your opponent has to spend seven mana to let you draw a card, but they get their creature out of out from under the hold from hold for ransom, and I guess that's them paying the ransom. But uh, I think it's a little different. I think it's the creature has pay seven. Yeah, so like the, the creature itself can't attack or block, and then the creature has hold. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. Right. So oh, I I, I had this one wrong. So I thought it was like they sacrificed the creature, uh, but they sacrificed the ransom. Right. They the they pay the ransom. They let you draw a card, but then they get their creature back. Oh, oh, I guess I misread this one. guess nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's still solid for, for the white aggressive decks, the, the slight change. I mean, if you if your game ends before your opponent gets to seven mana, then like it, that text never matters anyway. To be honest, that's probably why I didn't pay too much attention. I saw it was an active ability that cost seven on an arrest, and I was like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> the other game's thing- not going to last nearly that long. The other thing too is like if it does last that long, it needs to, you need to be ransoming a creature that they care enough to actually pay seven mana and give you a card to get back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't get to draw that, the card. I'm happy with that. Yeah, they don't get to draw the card. They're letting you draw a card and paying seven for it, but they get their creature. So like you need to arrest something that is really they really want back. So typically, I don't think you'd play this on two if you're ever expecting to get the the card back. Next up, we've got blue. A pair of solid removal spells, some instants here. Uh, well, one instant, one sorcery. First up is Run Out of Town. This is Darina Blue for an instant at common. The owner of target non-land permanent puts it on top or bottom of their library. Just nice solid four mana removal spell. It hits any non-land permanent. This hits creatures, enchantments, auras, anything you need to get rid of. Uh, run Out of Town runs it out of town. So, seems solid to me. Yep, nothing more to add. And second here, I have Rooftop Nuisance. So this is two and a blue for a sorcery at common. It is casualty once. You could sacrifice like a one power token or something to copy it. The effect is tap target creature. It doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. Draw a card. I have a suspicion that the rooftop nuisance is going to be a strong way to convert extra tokens or things laying around or just random little one ones you've gotten. You'll be able to convert those into card advantage and board advantage. So this is a frost breath type effect, a... Uh, uh, chilling breath. I mean, there's tons of effects like this where you lock down your opponent's stuff, and this gets around like the shield counters. This gets around all sorts of stuff. This kind of blows out some aspects of, uh, of of blitz, where if they attempt to play their creature and blitz it, you just you know tap down. If they blitz in two creatures, you just tap down both their blitzed things. They well, get to so draw so the fun. cards off them when they go away. Oh yeah, never mind. So that, I guess that would be too good. I guess they, they wanted to not allow that interaction to happen. I'm already thinking that that'd be a sweet thing to do. I guess that this would be the ultimate blitz hoser. So I guess it's a little worse in that you can't do it on your opponent's turn, but uh, the fact that you can copy this and get two cards out of it, convert a 1-1 into a card, feels pretty strong. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other thing to, to remember is that in the Maestro's Colors, you're going to be able to like buy this back from the graveyard and then recast it for casualty and then get like two more triggers off of it. Like it's one card that's going to net you a card because you're, if you can sacrifice like a token, you're drawing two cards. 
or you're drawing a card off of it, and then with the with the copy you're drawing a second card. You're locking down two creatures, so if you have anything resembling a board presence, you're going to be able to get in for damage. Like, this is a, a, a lot. There's a lot going on with this card. Next up in black, we've got some actually solid removal spells. Uh, black has murder. Murder's been reprinted at common, so it's one black black instant. Destroy target creature. Notably, Simple. one black black may actually be difficult to cast in this format because it's at least on curve, right? Like, you're, you're looking to get the tricolors going and... That means you're not going to have two black on, on turn three a lot of the time. Yeah, you might have to take like turn four or you know, hopefully not, but maybe turn five off if you only have two black sources and some other black cards in hand to, to take out their good creature. But even then, it is three mana just answer any problematic creature on board. Besides a shielded one, this does not match up well against shielded creatures. Definitely. What does match up well against shielded creatures is deal gone bad. This is three and a black for an instant and common target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn and target player mills three cards. Now, I guess they're intending you to mill yourself with this and probably fuel some of that, those juicy uh, blue black decks that everybody's going to be running around with. But uh, yeah, the, the important thing here is that the minus three, minus three does get around shield tar- uh, tokens because or shield counters because shield counters only care about the cards taking damage. And this doesn't do that. So it's a nice little way to get around that and probably will be a fairly high pick in black decks. Unless you want to go for the whole mill your opponent out thing. Uh, and maybe, maybe you could pull that off if you pick up enough bad deals here. In red, we've got Strangle. That's one in red for a sorcery at common. Deal three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Nice. It's a bolt. It doesn't hit players, but uh, I mean, it hits anything else. Maybe we hit... We didn't really get to play well with Lightning Bolt or Moonrager Slash from, from Midnight Hunt. We kind of took it for granted just because of how bad werewolves were in that format. But maybe this format will be worthy of, of, a, of a true bolt for creatures. Yep. And I actually picked a, a common creature here, which we haven't had a ton of in, in our list so far. But in red has Witty Roastmaster, which is two in a red for a 3-2 at common. It's a devil citizen, and it has whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, Witty Roastmaster deals one damage to each opponent. You're going to be roasting your, <laughs> you're going to be roasting your opponents to death if you. All right, so hear me out. Uh, this plus the the mythic uh, artifact that makes all your lands tap for treasures, uh, and then and then some other stuff. Uh, you just pop off, make a ton of stuff, and then dump your handful of creatures. Yeah, or only... combo this with the other thing, the uh, the stimulus package, and then make like seven creatures every turn. That's yeah. a combo. Yeah, you only need um, a multicolored uh, uncommon and a mythic rare to make this card good. But yeah, <laughs> you know it's going to happen. Uh, if if someone gets that mythic, they're putting these two in the, in the deck, right? Like yeah. the Rose Master seems like a good way to deal your opponent like one to two damage every turn. I mean, it's limited. You're playing these creatures, and you're playing creatures right. that make other creatures. Curve this into the Darling of the Masses and start pumping out an extra token each turn. Uh, I feel like this is going to add up really fast, and without an answer, this is strong inevitability. If this just sits on your board and deals five damage to your opponent, uh, imagine playing a three-mana, three-two ETB, nug your opponent for five damage to the face. Like that, That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do have to spread this out over being able to cast creatures, but if you somehow get to get a bunch of creatures into play the turn you play this, like, it will literally be that. And otherwise, like, it's a 3-mana three 3-2 three, at worst. You're never going to play this and then not play more creatures. Maybe this will die first, I guess, but you are probably fine if your opponent points a removal spell at your 3-mana three 3-2. Three, yeah, this just seems like a really solid rate common. Yeah. Last but not least, green. 
So we've got another pushed common here uh, in Jewel Thief. That's two and a green for a 3-3. Three, three. It's a cat rogue at common. It has Vigilance. It has Trample. And when it enters the battlefield, make a treasure. Yeah, another really pushed creature that's monocolored. It's so weird that green and white got these, but then the other colors just didn't. Uh, uh, I don't, red I don't has get a bolt. It. Right? Like, yeah, but it's got a bolt in a set with like tokens that are like, ha, your damage doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. Uh, I love Jewel Thief. You could curve this into a five drop. You could just save the treasure and use it for something else. You could sacrifice it to another effect. It's also a three mana, three, three vigilance trample. And even just with those stats alone, like this would be one of the best green commons, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and then, like you said, being able to give you fixing on the way. If you happen to be able to rebuy this, you're just like getting more treasures. Sometimes you'll convert those treasures into other creatures. Like, yeah, it's just going to be crazy. Um, I think this is going to be a very powerful card that will literally be played in every green deck that can play one. Yeah, you'll never cut this. Last but not least here, we have prize fight. One of the green for an instant at common. Target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. Create a treasure token. So it's an instant speed fight. And you actually had a note about this before the show, too. Yeah, the the cool thing with this card is that any creatures of yours that have shield counters on them turn this into a bite effect, basically, because they will survive through any of the fighting. Um, and then it's just got the upside of having a treasure just enter the battlefield, because why not? Yeah, just like just staple treasures on everything. Uh, I love it when we, when we get those free effects. Green has a lot of treasure. Yeah, it's also a great flavor win, right? The prize fight, you're, you're getting the prize yeah. at the end. Your creature may or may not survive, but... <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that that's it. Those are the cards in the set. That's, I mean, obviously not all of them, but those are the ones we wanted to highlight and we've walked through all the different all families. We, we got them all. Yeah, every card. Yep. Um, so final thoughts. Talk to me. What do you think? How, where are you feeling as we get into this set? What are you most excited for for pre-release? What's going on? Just from all the analysis that we've had to do, I'm solidly in ready for my pre-release. I mean, just creature ETBs paired with this massive treasure generation. Uh, paired with some of the pretty cool rares. I mean, the four mana, like, haste, lifelink, vigilance, or it's like haste, lifelink, trample, or something like that. Oh, what a what a beautiful design. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be solidly in cab ready for my pre-release. And I'll see what I can put together. Uh, this looks like a pretty cool set. The fixing is going to be fun, just like setting up boards that work. Be careful of your mana out there, folks, because... You know, if you if you don't build your mana base correctly, you don't want to play six of each basic and just call it a day. It's not going to work, uh, especially given a lot of these pretty intense three color requirements. And also, don't be afraid to just play two colors. It seems like there's going to be some pretty solid uh, two color decks. Black, red in particular looks very strong. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. I think this set is really there's a lot going on, but it feels very streamlined. Like I coming through all of that, I don't feel confused about what the families need to do. I don't feel yeah. like they're like spread too thin or anything like that. I'm pretty sure I'm going Obscura for pre-release because I think the the extra card, like the uh, card advantage is going to just be able to kind of drown opponents. Not only are you getting card advantage, but you're also putting counters on your stuff. So I think that's going to be really valuable. But I also really like the brokers and the shield counters thing. Plus when you pair shield counters with Alliance and getting all that stuff going, that seems like a great way to get card value as well. Or card advantage in some ways, so I'm not I'm not sold 100% on Obscura yet. But individually, when I look at cards by themselves, the Obscura cards make me the most excited. So we'll see how it goes. Um, you had a note here: no arena testing this time around. 
Yeah, before we talk about that, I want to mention that if you do choose Obscura, I hope you open like five snooping newsies and, and oh. do manage to put that deck together <laughs> just to prove us wrong. Uh, but yeah, there's no retesting. testing. It needs, it needs like rares and mythics to actually work, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this time around, pre-release won't be just hounded by myself and, and others who have played on Arena several days beforehand for the pre-release. Uh, once again, just like good old times, this will be a, uh, a, a one where no one has played with the cards before yet at all, unless they've done some uh, pretty hardcore original testing by you know playing on a on a simulator or something. So I'm excited. Everyone's going to be level playing field, except us. We'll be on a a slightly lower playing field because we're bad, and <laughs> I guess we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, notably, um, you talked about taking home the trophy at pre-release. We're not doing a two-headed giant pre-release this time around, so I have something to say about that, but we'll see how that actually turns out. Look, there can only be one, right? Yeah, there there literally can, unless we drew at the end, I guess, intentional draw. We can anyway, always fight it out if we have to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that does it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. We love doing these, and obviously there's a new set around, so we're super excited. We hope you are as well, and if you are, jump into the Discord to share that excitement with the rest of the Traficionado community. We've got channels for just about everything, and I opened up the Streets of New Capenna channel today as of recording, so get in there, show us your decks, show us your pre-release kits. We're really excited to hear all that you have to share about this format. The link to that Discord is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaff pod. Once again, we really, really appreciate your support. And thank you all for those of you who have continued to support us throughout our content creation journey here. If you'd like to reach out to us outside of the Discord, Twitter is the best place to do that. You can find the show directly at draftchaffpod. And you can find Ben at betafish1. That's it for us. Talk to you later. So we're pre-releasing this weekend. That we are. At 3.30, which yeah. is an absurd time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 3.30 p.m., by the way. I mean, 3.30 a.m., I guess, would also be a weird time, but like maybe more reasonable than 3.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. I would almost prefer 3.30 a.m. just because of the novelty of it and, and how silly that would be. But 3.30 p.m., it is. Uh, so we're going to pre-release 3.30 p.m. Immediately after, we're going to have our office hours. So those that are interested, Squadron Hawks, uh, hop in the Discord call with us. We will tell you everything about our pre-release, all the goods, all the bads, uh, how fun it was for me to defeat Zach in the finals, the pre-release, and uh, all the other good stuff like that. Now, uh, what are we getting for dinner after? That's a great question. Um, we have kind of a, I, I guess at this point, it's like kind of a tradition slash habit. I don't know what to call it of getting Asian food when you come to hang out. So maybe we just go get sushi. Um, it's not going to be a midnight pre-release. So like it's going to be real dinner when we used to do midnight pre-releases in my town, we would go grab like breakfast sandwiches at this bagel place that's open 24 hours, but we're getting dinner. So I don't know. I mean, I'm cool with sushi. I'm cool with Indian. I'm cool. I'm cool with anything. I mean, we have so much good food here. So we said we we're going to get Indian last time, but we didn't. I'd be down for, for Indian. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, do it. I, I, I almost want like like dumplings of some kind, but I don't really know why. Just well, we can get some about it. Yeah, that's true. Those those are pretty good dumplings. Um, I don't know. I just have dumplings on the mind for some reason. It must be nothing. <laughs>